The very first Christmas wasn't nearly as pretty and as clean as we make it out to be. In a lot of ways, it was actually a pretty frightening time. Truth of the matter is that at that time, around the time of the first Christmas, Bethlehem was the most dangerous place in the world if you were a baby boy. Our text for today is a story that what we probably just as soon forget. It's a story about the boys of Bethlehem. Historians call it the slaughter of the innocents. It's the darker side of the Christmas story. Tucked away near the end of Matthew chapter 2, near the end of Matthew's birth account, verses 16 and 18. So let's start uh, by reading it. Let me read it for us. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Voice was heard in Ramah, Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is God's word. You know, every so often we come across something like this, something that's just so heartbreakingly awful and cruel that we can't help but stop and ask, why? This is one of those times. I mean, King Herod was so insecure, so so paranoid, so cruel, that, that when the Magi, the wise men, told him about the birth of a new king in Bethlehem, he went ballistic. Herod couldn't allow a rival king to live, even if he was a baby. So Herod didn't take any chances, and he had all the little boys in Bethlehem, under two years old, slaughtered. Why? Why did God let this happen? Why did God let this happen to kids, toddlers, babies even? I mean, that's, that had to be what, what the moms and dads and the grandmas and grandpas in Bethlehem asked when King Herod's soldiers killed their children. Why, God? Why? What would you tell them? Uh, I mean, what do you even say? Because, I mean, it's people who did this. Herod gave the order. His men carried it out. Why? Sin? Evil? I mean, that's ultimately what causes people to do horrible things. And it is important to remember that God did not do this. People sick with sin, people all twisted up by evil did this. 
Not so different from the Jewish boys and girls in the 1940s who were boxed up in train cars and shipped off to Auschwitz by another sin-sick, evil tyrant. Sin-sick people doing God-forsaken things. There's something, though, especially horrific about the innocent being killed. And it's a terrible mystery. Why? Why God allows the innocent to suffer and die. But he does, and we wonder why. Now, as a pastor over the years, I've had some experience with people who have to deal or who have had to deal with terrible tragedies. And those people struggled and wrestled with the why question. And, you know, like all pastors, I desperately wanted to have something meaningful to say, something meaningful to offer them. But I always come away from this feeling just really, really inadequate. And I know I'm probably going to feel the same way today when I'm done here. But here's the thing. As hard as this is, as Christians, as people of faith, that we can't shrink away from that question, the why question. We have to own it. We have to have the strength to face a world that's filled with evil and suffering, a world that's asking why, a world that says, how can you believe in a God that would allow things like this to happen? And we have to, as people of faith, have the courage to respond. And maybe our first response to this as Christians is to admit that this why question is a big problem for us. It's a serious problem for Christians. But here's the thing. We also have to recognize that evil and suffering is also a problem for everyone else, no matter what their beliefs are. So for the rest of our time here, I want to talk to our, our brains for a minute, and then I want to finish by talking to our hearts, okay? So f- first, our brains. Um, there, there's a famous philosopher named Alan Plantinga, and uh, he put it this way. He says, when you think about evil and suffering, okay, this is what he says. The most appalling kind of evil and horrifying wickedness is a problem for anyone who believes in God. But this is at least as big, if not an even bigger problem, for people who don't believe in God. Those are your only two alternatives. He says, if there's no God, could there even be such a thing as horrifying wickedness? If there's no God and we only evolved, I don't see how. An atheistic view of the world has no place for genuine moral obligation. The strong eating the weak is completely natural. Therefore, if there's no God, then there's no such thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. So, 
if you can't help but think that there are some genuinely, horrifyingly wicked things that happen in the world, then you actually have a pretty powerful argument for the reality of God. All right, you know what he's saying here? He's saying that, that if you are a Christian, if you believe in the Christian God, that the why question's a big problem. Because if this God is all-powerful and all good at the same time, why is he allowing this? We don't know. And it's a real problem. But he's saying that if you don't believe in God, it's an even bigger problem. Because if there's no God, then things like the weak or the, the strong eating the weak is just natural. That's just nature. You know, cats kill mice. Lions kill gazelles. Herod kills baby boys in Bethlehem. So what? It sounds absurd, but if there's no God, you have no cause to be outraged by this. You're almost forced to say, it's just nature. I mean, seriously, if you say that, that outrage over evil and suffering are the reasons you can't believe in God, you say that, but, but if there's no God, then you don't have any basis for your outrage, which was the original reason you didn't believe in God to begin with. So you're stuck right back where you started. So here's what I'm saying to our, to our brains and why I think this is important, that that even though believing in God in the face of suffering and evil is hard, and it is, not believing in God in the face of suffering and evil is even harder. It's actually a self-contradiction. It, it doesn't hold up. All right, um, so that, that's enough with our brains. Now let's talk to our hearts for a little bit because this is a problem that we also deeply feel. So how do we deal with this then? This problem of evil and suffering as Christians, as people of faith. Well, I mean, one, one of the great themes of the Bible is that God identifies with people who are suffering. Okay, there, I mean, there are all these great Old Testament texts where God says things like, if you oppress the poor, you oppress me, or I am a father to the fatherless, I am a husband to the widow, things like that. And, and I think that these scriptures are saying that God's heart is so deeply connected to suffering people, so deeply connected that he, that he interprets any action against them as an action against him. I mean, that's powerful stuff there in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, God, it says that, that God goes even way, way beyond that. The New Testament says that, that in Jesus Christ, God's son, God himself became vulnerable to human suffering and death. God himself became personally involved in suffering and evil and death. 
He didn't stay safely above the fray. No, God entered into the fray. And and, and in something I don't think we'll ever be able to understand, God was willing to play by the same rules as us. God was willing to play by the same rules of human suffering and evil as the rest of us. Right from the beginning, he he came as a dirt poor baby. He was born in in some kind of stable. He was laid uh, a crib in a crib that was an animal feeding trough. There was no room in a comfortable place to stay. He fled to Egypt as a refugee. That's just the beginning. And he also came as a truly innocent one. Jesus' innocence was, uh, was like no one else, okay? Jesus was so innocent, so holy, so precious to his heavenly father that the Bible tells us that they were actually one. In, in a way, like no other father and son are one. And so, you know, you would have thought then that as the world lined up to kill the father's innocent son, well, I mean, you would have thought that the father would have just rolled up his sleeves and started throwing thunderbolts. But he didn't. Just like with Herod and the innocent little boys of Bethlehem, God didn't do anything to stop the assault and murder of his innocent son. And no one even raised a voice against this. This cruel injustice, this terrible, tragic waste of a perfectly innocent life at the hands of sin-sick, evil men. And Jesus never raised his voice either. All he said was a prayer. A prayer that his murderers would be forgiven. And this is absolutely astounding. The father willingly giving up his innocent son into the hands of evil and the son forgiving evil as if, well, as if love and mercy and grace really is the ultimate reality of the universe. So, I mean, if we want to talk then about the slaughter of the innocents on the cross of Jesus Christ, the true and ultimate innocent one was slaughtered by sin-sick, evil men. But it wasn't the end. Because Jesus, the innocent one, he looked at sin-sick humanity. He looked at a world twisted up by evil. He looked at suffering. And he even looked at violent, bloody death itself. And he said, enough. That is enough. And three days after the world had done its dirtiest work, to the 
most innocent of all. Jesus rolled back the stone and he walked out of the grave and he showed the whole world that the death of the innocents will never, ever have the last word. So when we ask the question then, why would God allow evil and suffering? I'm sorry, but God does not give us an answer. Instead, God gives us something I think is even better. Instead of an answer, God gives us Jesus. Jesus who entered into our world, played by our rules, personally experienced the the rock-bottom depths of human suffering and evil. Jesus, who is there in the lowest places of our lives. Are you broken? Jesus was broken like bread for us. Are you despised? Jesus was despised and rejected by men. Do you cry out that you can't take it anymore? Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Did someone betray you? Jesus was sold out for some pieces of silver. Are your closest relationships broken and shattered? Most of the people Jesus was closest to abandoned or rejected him. Are you going through hell? Jesus descended into literal hell. And as Corey Tenboom wrote, and wrote, by the way, from the depth of a Nazi prison camp, she wrote, no matter how deep our darkness, Jesus is deeper still. Jesus descends into all of our hells. And, and, and that's just the thing, that, that God does so much more than just sympathize with you in your troubles. I mean, those of us who are blessed with friends have people who sympathize with us. I mean, good friends sit with us and comfort us and empathize with us, and that's wonderful. We need that. But Jesus is so much more than that. So much closer than even your, your closest friend. Because trusting and believing and putting our, our faith in him, as that happens... He is in us. And what that means then is that your sufferings are his sufferings. And your sorrow is his sorrow. And your tears are his tears. Even at Christmas time, when maybe it's the hardest. You know, one of the things that... that that people say when there's some kind of suffering and loss this time of year is, ugh, and so close to Christmas. You ever heard that or or said something like that? 
my, my friend Randy's mom passed away like, it's been like five or six years ago now, but it happened just a couple days before Christmas. And, and I remember that when we heard the news that one of the first things we said was that, ugh, it's so close to Christmas. So how do we respond to this? How do we go on? How do we face suffering and loss at Christmas? How do we deal with the darker side of Christmas? The gloom underneath all the glitter. Because for some of us, Christmas serves as a painful reminder of all the what might have been memories. Those memories that hit us every time the tree goes up. The darker side of Christmas that I know that some of you know and feel all too well. The author Chad Bird wrote something about this darker side of Christmas. And, and I, I think that, that what he said is so good, so helpful and meaningful that, that I want to share some of it with you. I shared some of this on, on Christmas Eve. And if you were here Christmas Eve and it sounds familiar, that's good because I think it's worth sharing again. So uh, I'll, I'll close with this. He wrote, maybe part of the mistake we've made is in forgetting that the first Christmas, the actual birthday of Jesus, started out as the worst of times. Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem because of taxes, because the money-hungry, tyrannical Roman overlords had forced them to undertake this journey when no pregnant woman should be on the road. No warm, sanitized birthing suite awaited them after their trip. Nothing but a cold, dark barn. And when this young mother went into labor, where was she supposed to lay down and give birth? On rough hay littered with cow crap? Where'd they get light? Warm water? cloths to clean up the blood. It's a wonder both mother and child didn't die that night. The original nativity must have looked more like a rural crime scene. This is not the way any baby, least of all Jesus, should have been born. And yet it was. Far from home, in the dark, in the cold, in the mess, in the blood, in the crap of this world, God was born. Now that's a Christmas story I like because it's one I can identify with. More than that, it's a Christmas story that gives meaning and hope to our own dark cold, bloody, messy, crappy Christmases that, that seem anything but joyful. Because it was on this first Christmas night 
that God began to teach us that we don't have to have a hallmark Christmas to find peace and contentment and joy. All we need is Jesus. Because Christmas is not presents, it's not about family and friends, it's not even about little children. It's about the little child. The one in the manger. It's about God taking on our flesh and blood, being born as one of us to share our griefs, to bear our sorrows, and to unite us to himself so that right in the middle of our griefs and sorrows, we might find him, or better yet, he might find us. There's a reason that the Bible calls Jesus a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. The first sound leaving our newborn Lord's lips would have been a cry. How fitting is that? That God knows what it means to weep, to hurt, to suffer loneliness and anger and loss, and yes, even to suffer death. You don't have a savior who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses. You have one who has personally experienced them all. So that no matter what your own hurt is, he redeems it and and carries you through it and, and also promises you that one day it'll be over. One great and awesome day, he will make all things new. This is how we face the darker side of Christmas. This is how we face an unknown 2022. This is how we face pain and loss. This is how we face the the, the terrible mystery of evil and suffering. By looking long and deep into the gospel of Jesus Christ who he is, and everything that he's done for us. That's where we'll find what we need. So when evil and suffering touches your life, uh, and it will for all of us, run to Jesus. Run into his always open arms and you'll find the peace that you need for today you'll find the courage that you need for our unknown future and you'll also find the incredible sustaining hope and promise of true abundant eternal life Amen. Let's pray together.